This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I am determined to do all I can to secure the reassurances this House requires to get this deal over the line and deliver for the British people. And that is, of course, Prime Minister Theresa May of the United Kingdom addressing Parliament earlier this morning. What we didn't hear was all the jeers and the shouting. It's tough. That really uh, makes that experience unique, certainly, uh, versus what we see here in the United States. John Authors is senior editor at Bloomberg Markets. Uh, we called him in to ask about his <laughs> homeland and what's uh, happening over there. It's been something we know you've watched very closely. John, yeah. great to be with you. Thanks. So. Uh, Put on your multiple hats and yes. tell us what to make of all of what we saw this morning out of London. Well, as a normal British person, I really like to get back to talking about things like Shakespeare and the Beatles. <laughs> a normal and British Things person, about Britain that are actually really good rather than, uh, rather than this ongoing national humiliation. Um, it's really, really bad, evidently. Uh, Theresa May could have hoped for better in terms of the response than she got. I mean, don't don't um, read too much into the amount of yelling and heckling and stuff. That's uh, that's good old fashioned uh, parliamentary democracy at work. But um, the, it doesn't appear as though anybody is impressed uh, by her professed reasons for delaying the vote, which is that she's going to go back to Europe for another round of negotiations. Um, there might be some very minor piece of paper some assurance or something they might give her at this point it's been okayed by all the other governments uh, it would be very difficult indeed for them to offer her anything substantively better i can therefore understand the annoyance of even some relatively supportive mps and obviously the annoyance of the markets that really all she's doing is treading water and hoping and trying to buy some time she's not going to get anything that would change the mind of anybody currently planning to vote against her deal. So, the, so then what's, what's the point, John, then? If, if, if it doesn't change the outcome, if nothing new is going to come of this, um, does a breather help her in any ways politically? It looks as though it does not. I, I guess the calculation she is making, and this may be hopeful or it may be accurate, is that um, at this point, a lot of people really are prepared to do, you know, for the Thelma Louise option and to drive over the cliff. And this might give them a few more days to, to really stew in their own juice and think whether that really makes sense. She genuinely believes that if Britain is going to leave the EU on anything like the kind of terms or with any kind, anything like the kind of advantages that people had in mind when they voted to leave, this is the best it's going to be. Uh, that's plainly... I, I, I think she does sincerely believe that. Um, can, we, can I ask you yes. something? Can we get a new referendum? Could we go back yes. there? Yes, we ah, could. I mean, this, okay. is, this is... You know, Britain doesn't have a constitution. We're making this up constantly as we go along. Uh, you could have a second referendum... 
uh, or a third, if actually, as there was a, also a referendum on this way back in 1975, when it would have been much easier to leave. Uh, that is an argument that is being put by a number of people, full disclosure, including some of my former work colleagues um, from my previous existence at the Financial Times, who are now politicians, of both Conservative and Labour stripe. The issue I have with it, I, at a principled level, um, wanted to stay in the EU and would be only too happy to be given a chance to vote for that again. The problem is uh, the polls might suggest that there is a move in favour of uh, staying, but it's not a very strong one. If the polls were saying people have changed their minds, it's now going to be 7.30 to remain, then we would do it. At the moment, if we get another 52-48 but the other direction... That means 48% of the electorate will really be right. steaming mad for the foreseeable future. Uh, I, I mean, if you think what, what's, what kind of problems the Macron is in with the Gilets Jaunes at the moment, imagine what that 48% of the people is going to feel like. Uh, and so I, uh, and, and when you add to that that it's going to take a lot more time, it takes time to organize a referendum, uh, decide what the question is, uh, you probably have to delay Britain's departure anyway and pile on the agony with the markets. Um, so at a principle level, I badly disagreed with this decision, would like to go back on it if we can. Hmm. Um, but I'm extremely anxious that I'm not sure I would do this if do it if I were Theresa May, and I'm not sure I would invest in British assets uh if I got that news and I, as, a, as an international investor. Well, and it's clear, and, and you know, you look so closely at the, at the entire globe, and you mentioned President Macron dealing with his own sort of elements mm. of populism. You look at what's happening in this country, and if we were to revote the 2016 presidential election, maybe it goes slightly the other way, but to your point, you still have half of this country, half of the UK, half of many countries, uh, very yep. divided. Uh, Got to ask you before we let you go about this Huawei uh, situation <laughs> and how much that is weighing on either the trade talks or the market in general. I- I'm not sure it's weighing on the market that much because if you look at, um, if you look at the companies that are doing badly today... It's financials and oil, and I'm not really sure that either of those are most drastically affected by by the Huawei news. Um, tech is actually up for the day at the moment here in the States. Right. Um, one sector that did intrigue me when I looked it up, um, if you look at the topics, we've got bad news from Japan, Japanese stocks are not doing well. The worst sector by far in Japan is marine transport, hmm. down 40% from the top. So that sounds like an, a leading indicator of trade to of me trade. doing very badly. Yeah. Absolutely. John Arthur, senior editor of Bloomberg Markets. He is a prolific columnist, a must-follow. So Mary Jane, very cute. Uh, the next company, uh, ETF, we're talking about, the ticker is MJ. It takes stakes in companies that invest in the cannabis industry, about $700 million in assets under management. Uh, and the ETF, it's down about 13% uh, year-to-date, but up 12% from its August low. Jason Wilson is in the house, president of uh, Budding Equity Asset Management. Great name. He's partner in the MJ ETF and uh, based in Toronto, but uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio on this Monday. Nice to have you here. 
are welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about the market. And when you guys are looking to invest in particular companies, what are you looking for? Is there enough out there in the universe that you can kind of pick and choose as you see? Well, we're, we're not an active fund. We're just a passive fund. So we follow an index, number one. And uh, yeah, our universe is getting larger and larger and larger. It's uh, It's been a great run this year. We've uh, seen a bunch of things happening from... Epidiolex being approved by the FDA. That was a big one. Obviously, the Constellation Brands investment in, in Canopy. And then most recently, the Altria investment in Kronos. So it's it's becoming bigger, mainstream, more global, and uh, yeah, a lot more companies to, to include in our fund. So talk to us about the, the breakdown that comes given that so much of this is based on the federal legalization in Canada. You have some state-by-state stuff, obviously, going on here in the United States, but still illegal at a federal level. How much sort of risk uh, is there in that? How much is that going to slow down the, the growth that we've seen so far? So, you know, with respect to the the fund, we only invest in companies that are not in violation of U.S. federal law. So that's number one. So we Smart. don't. Yeah, it's a good thing when you're SEC regulated fund. Note it to self. <laughs> Elon Musk notwithstanding in his re- respect or lack thereof for the SEC. Go on. It's, it's interesting. At uh, various investor conference, people are like, am I going to go to jail if I invest? For like, no, probably not. At least not for uh, buying a NYSE listed uh, ETF. But um, right. No, we, we do. That's one of our key criteria is to look at companies that are that are operating, you know, within proper federal regimes and guidelines. So the majority of our stocks are Canadian, uh, but it does have a global outreach. And um, it, it's the Canadian market is relatively small. The global market is much bigger. If you look at uh, there's over 40 countries right now that have either legalized marijuana for medical purposes or in the process of doing so. And then with respect to the U.S., a lot of these Canadian companies that are in our fund, like Canopy, uh, like Kronos, like Aurora, they are actually making contingent investments in U.S. assets. Right. So it's either locking up greenhouse space or it's maybe providing, call it contingent, uh, contingent equity through warrants or whatnot. That would give them full-blown ownership upon federal legalization. So there's still... You know, at least uh, there's some kind of uh, connection to the U.S. as well as the market expands down here. For the success of the industry, is it going to ultimately be consolidated to a few key players? Is that how you see it playing out? I, I think, I think that's going to play out to some degree. I mean, there's going to be your large Amazon or Google, so to speak, and right now that looks to be Canopy in large part. Yeah. But everyone and certainly else, is the case if you ask Canopy. Well, yeah. absolutely. We're going to yeah. talk to them later. Yeah. Oh, great. Later on. Oh, they're you know they've done a great job. Well, you know they have a great war chest, a ton of cash. Uh, they're making some really smart moves in this space, uh, and you know so we're we're big fans. But you know it's it's there's other players that are coming and and taking up little kind of niche spots. So you know the Green Organic Dutchman's a good example. They've gone with the you know like the, the, the whole foods, if you will, of the industry, and they figure that'll give them to let the big guys fight it out for the rest they want the that little niche of the market jason do we yet know which niche of the market is going to be the highest i guess grower the most the biggest grower is it the medical side is it recreational is it consumer products makeup something like that i mean do we really have a handle i know it's no no No, it's too early innings to really see i I, there's definitely a lot of enthusiasm for the adult use recreational side yeah globally medical is huge i mean we we know that Uh, we're seeing more of that um there's kind of step below that is is the wellness part and right. that's where you're getting a lot of the cbd yeah. kind of products in there and then there's you know there's just the um 
the consumer products, there will be some of that as well. And obviously, there'll be industrial application too, similar to hemp. And it is interesting. You know, we, we have had a number of people come through. And that beauty piece, uh, Peter yeah. Horvath mm-hmm. uh, is someone they work, used to work at L Brands. We've had him on the show a couple of times. He's really talking that bit up uh, quite a bit. And we should mention, as Carol alluded to, uh, Bruce Linton, the CEO of Canopy, going to be joining us later on this show. Just one last question, 30 seconds. What kind of money keeps flowing in? Uh, a fair amount. Uh, we've uh, pulled in about $650 million in assets year to date, um, which isn't surprising. I mean, we, it, there's been a lot going on in this space. Is it slowing at all? No, not at all. It's, it's, it's slowed off, but I have to say, very uniquely, even with the correction in the market recently, we haven't had any redemptions in the fund whatsoever. We wow. keep bringing in uh, issuing new shares. What types of investors briefly? Mostly retail. Retail. Absolutely. Jason Wilson is president of Budding Equity Asset Management, partner in the MJ uh, ETF. Definitely a space to watch and uh, an ETF to worth paying attention to. There's so much activity going on. There is some, you know, purchases, consolidation. Uh, it is fascinating to kind of see what's uh, going on. Who is that? I don't know what. ZZ Top. ZZ Top singing about burgers. It makes sense. But not on my playlist. But not on Just your playlist. That's, that's not surprising. You're more of a fan of the opera person. We know. <laughs> I am. Uh, David Lee is here with us. He is Chief Operating Officer and Chief Financial Officer of Impossible Foods. They, of course, are the maker of the award-winning Impossible Burger. It's a plant-based burger. And it bleeds. And that's how people know it. Uh, But so much more going on in the plant-based food industry. David, great to have you back with us. Really nice to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, So what's going on out there? Because I do feel like since the last time we talked to you, I mean, you've hit something of of an inflection point, clearly hit a nerve, as it were. um, And the world is sort of moving your way. Why? Well, I think consumers for a long time have been desperately looking for craveable meat, really craveable meat. Uh, that also doesn't create so many of the compromises they see in the world. Uh, we've gone back in July of 2016 with our single customer, David Chang at Momofuku, to now being at over 5,000 locations nationwide. Oh, and, my God. Yeah, and 100 locations uh, in Hong Kong and Macau. You know, Asia's 40% of the global meat market. So we're seeing a global phenomenon here. We're seeing a consumer movement that we've just begun to fulfill. So as you're growing, what's the, obviously, upside is great to see growth. What's the downside as you kind of manage that growth? For us, it's really important that as we expand our supply to these meat eaters, we do it in an extremely thoughtful, high-quality way. We we intend never to run out when we start a great opportunity. And it's actually an example of us being able to expand beyond the normal core meat eater. Uh, the new news of the day is that right. uh, we're halal, uh, along mm-hmm. with being kosher, as of a month ago, and and so we intend to serve every meat eater, even those with religious dietary restrictions. Well, what I also find so interesting is when you look at where the growth is coming from, it's not just, candidly, the Momofukus of the world. You know, it it is really a much broader, you're in stadiums, arenas, places like that. So clearly, and that's the question we asked, we were joking before we came on air that, you know, we love to talk about different trends, especially in fitness and, and and wellness and whatnot, but so much of that seems to be relegated to the very affluent, you know, the people who are either especially well-educated or candidly, you know, have more disposable income to pay up for the the, the higher end. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a great things. point. We have been really excited to see, for example, you know, we launched Chainwide at White Castle, and there that fast food consumer, oftentimes in urban locations, is not just looking for, for great food, they're looking for food that makes sense for the lifestyle they live. 
So there you can get, you know, an impossible slider for less than $2. These are not the fine dining coastal consumers. These are the Midwestern, inner city, urban consumers of fast food. Mass market. It's mass market. And I think what we're seeing is that this consumer movement for meat eaters to want something better pre-existed us. What may be new, we hope, is that we might be the one that actually hits the craveability mark. And as a result, tap into something that's that's really been quite big. What might surprise someone about the trends that we're seeing in the plant-based food market? Because I was looking at some of the numbers, the market size. I mean, sales of plant-based foods growing about 20% over last year. And uh, the number of new plant-based food and beverage products worldwide increasing 62% between 2013 and 2017. It's still a relatively smaller market, right? Right. But it's growing. It's growing. And and that market is growing. And optionality is growing. Yeah. And we welcome uh, plant-based eaters. But I got to tell you, the more surprising thing for your listeners is that our growth has been a multiple of that, a very large multiple of that, because something like 78% of the consumers that are coming back for the Impossible Burger are not plant-based. They're hardcore meat eaters. They want to eat meat every week. It's a part of their lives. So I think the new news is that it's not just about those who are growing from a plant-based standpoint. It's meat eaters who are demanding more and more product that, that they happen to get from us made out of plants. I'm interested in, in your background as well. You worked at Zynga and you know you worked at Del Monte. So you, know, you have all these elements of both sort of the food world and candidly coming up with what makes a hit, <laughs> you know, it, it, to well, a very I, fickle I, consumer? I certainly can't claim the hit. What I can claim is that the oddities of being in advertising and in finance and at Del Monte and in tech have helped me kind of look at problems differently. And it's a credit to Pat and the R&D team at Impossible that they gave us a product where we were allowed to look at it from a business standpoint and mm. say, maybe we can break all the rules with this one in terms of how we go to market. So in terms of going to market, you mentioned White Castle. So is a McDonald's or a Burger King soon to follow? I mean, when we really talk about mass market, I feel like that's the thing. You know, are you in Costco? Are you like, what? you know, give me an idea. Well, I think what you'll see next year is you'll, you will see us in retail. I can't wait for the home chef to take our product and see that it can be rare, well done. It can be a meatloaf. It can be, you know, pasta. You'll see us in more markets globally. I think we've announced that we'll be in Singapore, beyond Hong Kong and Macau. Um, and, you know, great companies like the ones you mentioned, these very large at scale quick service chains, they are smart about what the consumer is demanding. And I think you're seeing signs the consumer is demanding from them as well. Uh, meet without compromise. So I hope to be able to talk about that. Boy, uh, that sounded like a little year. bit of a tease. Yeah, deep tease. <laughs> uh, so when we think about any product like this, and especially given the names that Carol just mentioned and, and you alluded to, you worry about you know how deep is your moat, you know, and if if they're how how easy would it be? How defensible is your business against someone who says, "Wow, this is really catching on." I'm going to essentially come up with my maybe possible burger. We absolutely care about having the best product with the best brand, which, which in the end, even though we are the only ones with the global patent that can use the one thing Mother Nature created to make meat taste like meat, in the end, it's about quality and brand. Having said that, we think this is a $1.5 trillion global market. We need burgers entrance. no well you know our technology actually serves way beyond the burger yeah. it's all of beef pork right. chicken fish dairy yeah. so we welcome uh, new competitors we hope that they can hit that craveability mark uh, because the opportunity is very large can you do it alone we think we can but we're beyond open to partnerships which we know you're already do- well i'm just saying above and beyond that i we we are self-reliant 
you know, a mission like ours, a business opportunity like ours, we can't bet that anybody will help us. That said, it's gravy and upside if there are credible partners for us uh, to do this with. Well, and obviously you've got some big name investors, not the least of which, least of which uh, is Bill Gates, who knows a thing or two about uh, building a big business. And you yourself have some uh, experience in the private equity world as well. It would feel like there's a lot of institutional investor demand out there. There is. You know, we've actually benefited from raising over $450 million in the last 18 months. And they really now include global multinational institutions like Tomasic, Viking Global, and others who would be wonderful as public investors as well as private. Um, and so we are operating at that level of rigor these days. I just think a lot of the uh, food companies that are out there who are trying to you know, adapt to ever-changing tastes by consumers have got to be looking at these alternatives. We see them doing it. They've done it in the beverage market. And they've got to be looking at uh, certainly very closely what you guys are doing. David Lee, always good to catch up. Come back. In a few months and let us know how things are going. I want to know about these other partnerships, maybe. David Lee is Chief Operating Officer, Chief Financial Officer at Impossible Foods, based in Redwood City, California, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York City on this Monday. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close, first trading day of the week. And with us, back with us, is Henley Smith, Vice President at Stone Castle Cash Management. $14 billion in assets under management uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio uh, on this Monday. Nice to have you back with us. Well, thanks for having me in. Looking rather casual. I try. In his corduroys. I try. His... A little festive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, like I don't have a Christmas tie on or a holiday yeah. what tie. Ha- what happened to the Santa Claus rally? Hey, maybe it's still there. We've got a couple more weeks left. How many more shopping days till Christmas? Yeah, or trading days, I should say. Well, what do you make of this market environment? Uh, um, boy, I know. I, I think the watch phrase and the watch word for us has been, you know, preservation of principle with value. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is the first time in a long time and exciting for a guy like me who's been operating in the short part of the fixed income curve for so long time. But, you know, uh, this is a long time uh, since we've seen short um, bonds pay cash in particular. Yeah. So at two percent plus with cash, I think a lot of people, you know what? Let's let's close the books and let's uh, let's sit in cash and let let let's let's let it play out at this point. So yeah, a lot of a lot of cross currents in here. And are you hearing other folks who maybe aren't? always so bullish on that strategy come in come into oh, that oh totally yeah. absolutely totally i mean i think you've seen a lot of financial press you know, you name it uh saying you know cash has been the big winner of 2018 and mm-hmm. my guess is that cash will probably be a winner in 2019 you know expectations that the fed will move next week i mean a little bit of maybe in, in doubt for some but my guess is that the fed will move uh, the market is expecting it uh, I think if they don't move, uh, they could be sending a, a more uh, dire signal. So I, I think at this point, the Fed has to lead and will lead next week. And I think at that point, cash continues to be uh, an asset allocation that makes sense. It went from accommodation to asset allocation.
communication. Yeah, it is interesting. I am curious. So you're seeing a fair amount of flows into cash specifically. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think. And I'm assuming uh, out of equities into uh, cash or yeah. not necessarily. Well, I think that long bonds have, you know, people oh, okay. are just, were shortening up all year. And, you know, and I think that's continued to be on the case, be the case. Uh, so I think that continues on. Maybe that slowed down a little bit because, you know, the 10 years rallied from here from a high of 320 a couple of weeks back. Um, but, you know, a lot of out of equity and into cash, as I said, it's, it's a place that most people don't want to hide. I would think probably most wealth managers would say the cash is a wealth destroyer. You don't want to be in cash long term. I would agree. Uh, but I think uh, at this particular juncture, uh, be it strategic, tactical, whatever, uh, being in cash uh, makes a lot of sense. I like one of the in the notes that you provided before you came on. You talked about baby black swans. Exactly. I <laughs> love that idea. Well, you know, again, we, I think last time I was here, we were talking, what's going to be the next thing that kind of knocks the market off? What's the next black swan? And, and I think probably what you've seen is kind of a, a series of little baby black swans, maybe signets as they call it, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, you know, from tweets to trade to whatever it might be, uh, you know, it, it, it's really been keeping the market on its toes. And I think for that reason, a lot of people have said, you know what? Let's protect principle. Let's just stay safe. And, and I think that that's where we're at right now. It's an interesting note, too, because I feel like so many days we come in here and even when there is a big market sell off, it's not. And, and we sort of watch, um, you know, we sort of watch our colleagues on the Market Live blog or even mm-hmm. seeing what our, our colleagues across Bloomberg News are producing. And there is no clear theme of, all right, it was trade. It was you know tariffs or trade or it was tech or it was whatever it's all these little things it's been these little black swans that have hit us since the beginning of october usually october it goes away by this time and you know santa claus rally kicks in but uh, for some reason it's been hanging on a little bit longer than people have expected and i think that's again that's you know again i think that's because the consensus was been so crowded you know the fed's been very transparent here uh, people people have been positioning that but when you have these wings of uh, volatility it, it kind of really heightens it a little bit because the, the consensus has been so crowded but there's also been a conversation um henley about people kind of waking up and realizing, okay, we're in a different rate environment. We're not high by historic means, not even close in terms of federal rate uh, increases or Federal Reserve increases in interest rates, but it's but it's a move, a continuing move higher. Yeah, I think and there, that's been a different trend. Yeah, I think there's been a little sticker shock here. I mean, you see it in the housing market in particular yeah, yeah. where housing has slowed because mortgage rates have moved up. Um, so yeah, I think that there's a little sticker shock. I think that's really a function of where we've been for the last 10 years where people have gotten so used to zero interest rates. And maybe the Fed, as in my opinion, you know, overstayed that, that strategy a little bit too long and got people hooked on the fact that, you know, interest rates should be zero. When I borrow, it should be zero. And now that we're getting back to a more neutral level, a more historic level of where interest rates have been historically, uh, yeah, from that zero rate, it looks, it looks like sticker shock. And so do you think this cash play lasts through 19? Yeah, as a cash manager, I certainly hope so. <laughs> right. uh, but yeah, I do. I think uh, my estimation is we've been waiting for this second shoe to drop since 2010. And for that reason, a lot of people have been allocating to cash just more than they have been in the, in the past. And when you say shoe drop, you mean just the market taking a more permanent leg down? I would think so, yeah. Something a little bit more permanent. Right? You know, we've, we've been buying the dips and it's been worked. This is the first time I think I've read that people aren't buying the dips so much. 
So, uh, but up until this point, buying the dip has certainly been a been a been a winning strategy, and maybe that's changing a little bit because interest mm-hmm. rates are starting to move up. Yeah, it is interesting too that um, I am curious about. You know, we talked a lot about the inversion, or at least part the inversion of part of the yield curve last week. Yes. was that significant in your view? Uh, not really. I think it's a little bit of a noisy thing. It was twos, fives. It's still yeah. inverted right now. I think right. the really the driving force is going to be twos, ten year notes. If that inverts, then I think people will be concerned. Certainly because uh, the inverted yield curve has been a great uh, predictor of recessions for the last yeah. how many years. So I think just for that reason, it's been case. But the caveat I put out again is coming from zero interest rates and the high level of accommodation we've had, how does that change that, that dynamic? Henley Smith, Senior Relationship Manager over at Stonecastle Cash Management, overseeing about $14 billion here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It's funny to see, you know, sort of which strategies start to come to the fore after literally years of sort of seeing uh, the same thing. And I think back to the conversations we've had with Peggy Collins and others about the hedge fund world and who's winning. I mean, this is the sort of market that starts to shake things out a a little bit. And you see people moving into cash or, you know, at the shorter end of the yield curve in terms of uh, treasuries, because at this point you get some yield, but you take out some of the risk, which is you're seeing often in the equity side of things. And this is another theme and story that we've been covering a lot of. All right. So can I just mention what I know we're getting toward the close of trading, but this story just came across and I am blown away by it. Uh, There's a wedding in India. I love this story. Daughter of Asia's richest man to wed India tycoon's son, a wedding that could cost $100 million. We call it the real crazy rich Asian wedding based off of that or playing off of that movie. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.